The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And on this episode, we'll get some expert insight into what it takes to succeed at the highest levels. Our guest is social psychologist Ron Friedman, who's developed a game-changing approach to transform the way you learn new skills, generate creative ideas, and think about success. He's written about it in the new book, Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World reverse engineer success. Ron, we thank you so much for joining us. And there are so many questions. I hardly know where to begin, but tell us what inspired you to write Decoding Greatness. I'm a social psychologist who studies top performance. And as a social psychologist who studies top performance, one topic that fascinates me is how people achieve great things. In other words, how did those at the top of their fields, whether they be artists, athletes, inventors, or entrepreneurs, how did they get there? And what I discovered while doing some of the research is that in many cases, the stories we've been told about success are wrong. You say that a lot of these success stories come from people following what you call reverse engineering. How do you define that? Reverse engineering simply means studying the best in a field and then working backward to figure out how they did it. In Silicon Valley, it's well known. There's a long history of coders who've deconstructed winning products to learn how they're made. It's how we got the personal computer and laptops and the iPhone. What's less well-known is that reverse engineering also explains how writers like Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell learned their craft and how painters like Claude Monet became a groundbreaking artist and how Judd Apatow became one of the most successful comedy minds of our generation. Studying the best in a field and then working backward to figure out how they were created turns out to be a lot more common than anyone has realized. Now, how can we learn to do that? How can we learn to take apart models we admire and pinpoint precisely what makes them work and then come up with a new breakthrough on our own that isn't just copying what somebody else has done? Well, there's a, let me unpack that question. So the first part is, how do you do it? And I guess the easiest approach is to play a game we all played as kids called Spot the Difference. And what I mean by that is find an example in your field that resonates with you and then compare it to one that resonates a little bit less. So let's say you're uh, someone who's thinking about becoming a podcast host. You might take this podcast as an example of one that does really well and then choose a different one that maybe you like a little bit less or just is a little bit different in a different field. And then look to pinpoint some key differences. For example, one of the things you guys do really well is that you take turns alternating questions, right? Not everybody does that. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's something that resonates with you as a listener. And so rather than having the, uh, all of the uh, all of the responsibility bear down on your shoulders to be the podcast host and know what to ask every single moment, you can have a co-anchor. And that might be one aspect of reverse engineering this podcast and figuring out what are the distinguishing elements. So when I talk about reverse engineering, it's not so much about how do I figure out how that person did it? It's more about if I wanted to recreate it, 
how would I go about doing it? And so by playing spot the difference with different examples, the ones that resonate and the one that, ones that don't, you can pinpoint the elements that go into creating something sensational and then apply it to your field in a completely different way. You mentioned Barack Obama as an example of somebody who has used it. And I'm so fascinated because if you think about somebody like him using this technique and, and taking a little bit from somebody and kind of making it his own, it makes me feel like, like I could do anything if he could do it. <laughs> Tell us what his story is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is a fascinating story. So not a lot of people know this, but long before he became president, Obama got trounced in his first congressional race. It wasn't even close. Two out of three voters rejected him. And the problem was, and if you could believe it, is that he was a, ter- he was a dreadful speaker. Obama had been a professor and he was used to lecturing students and voters didn't appreciate being lectured to and they let him know at the ballot. So for a while, Obama thought about leaving politics until he, he, he noticed the way that pastors deliver sermons at church. And he started applying that approach to his speeches. So you see him, you see the evolution in his speeches. He starts telling more stories. He starts modulating his tone. He pauses at certain moments for effect. He uses repetition to drive home certain points. And what Obama's journey illustrates is that often the quickest path, quickest path to success isn't just simply finding your talent or practicing for a longer period of time. It's figuring out what's working for someone else, maybe that's in, even in a different field, and then incorporating that it into your work. And, and you see all sorts of examples of people looking outside their fields, pinpointing what works and bringing it into their own. And that's what reverse engineering allows you to do is you figure out what is unique and resonant about someone else's work, and then you find ways of applying it into your own. You know, you said something at the beginning of of the episode, and I wanted to go back to that. You said that most of what we think about how people got successful or, or how you create your own success story is wrong. How have we gotten it wrong? Well, most of us grew up with two basic stories about how people get to the top of their profession and achieve great things. The first story is that greatness comes from talent. So from this perspective, we're all born with certain innate strengths. And the key to achieving greatness is simply finding a field that allows those strengths to shine. That's the one story, the the story that greatness comes from talent. The second story is that greatness comes from practice. This is the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours perspective. So according to this perspective, getting to the top just requires the right practice regimen and an appetite and willingness to do a lot of hard work. But in doing the research for decoding greatness, what I found is that there's a third story and it's one that's not often told, yet it's the path that an astonishing number of top performers, everyone from writers and artists to inventors and entrepreneurs have used for generations. And that's what decoding greatness is about. It's reverse engineering. And it involves mastering the skill of looking at great works, working backwards to figure out how they were constructed and really accelerating the quickness with which you learn because now you're looking at the best in the field and then figuring out what makes them unique and incorporating them into your approach. So I'll also say that copying our favorite works actually bolsters our originality. How is that? Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite takeaways uh, from the book, which is that we, you know, in, in creative fields, 
there's a real stigma around the idea of copying someone else's work. So people, you know, when they first hear of, of this idea of, hey, if I reverse engineer, maybe that'll just reduce me to a hack because I'm just taking somebody else's formula. And this is why having research is so valuable. We have research out of the University of Tokyo that shows that in fact, when we copy others' works just for the purposes of education, you know, if we weren't wanted to replicate someone else's formula, what we find in doing that uh, is that it's our later work that then becomes more creative. In other words, the process of copying opens up your mind to fresh perspectives and fresh ideas, which then end up making you more productive, more, more creative later on. Um, and so in the study from the University of Tokyo that I mentioned, what they did was they had amateur artists copy the work of an established painter. And what they found was that Subsequent to that, in their later artwork, they became more creative. And the takeaway there is the last thing in the world you want to do when you're looking for a novel idea is be stuck in your own head. Creativity comes from blending ideas. And so when you look at someone else's work really, really closely, that opens your mind up to other ideas that you may not have even considered and then makes you more creative later on. So if you were to, for example, study the artwork of Picasso and Monet, you might uh -huh. be able to come up with your own kind of take mixing those two. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, we, we, this is, this is actually one of the key takeaways that I hope people draw from decoding greatness, which is that if you want to be creative, ironically, one thing you should stop doing is try to be so creative because what happens when we were too original is that we often miss the mark. What ends up being the most successful work are when we blend elements that work in a variety of different fields or in a, lot, a variety of different contexts and we present it in a new way. As long as it feels somewhat familiar, that actually is a boon because people are more likely to accept it. It's the work that's entirely original, that feels like it's coming out of nowhere, that ends up missing the mark because as a species, we tend to be distrustful of the of com something completely novel. We need it to feel somewhat familiar in order for, for it to resonate. Oh, interesting. Give us some examples of individuals who proved your case. Oh, my. There's so, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess, you know, one of the ones that really fascinates me is Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut was a uh, was a very well known uh, science fiction writer who wrote earlier in the middle of the 20th century. And what Kurt Vonnegut did in order to uh, reverse engineer popular stories and improve his writing was that he would look at the most famous stories and then map them out, chart chart them on a graph to see if he could find some underlying patterns. And how he did this was he would chart the protagonist's fortunes. So thereby showing over time whether things were going well for the protagonist or things going poorly. And what he found when he did this is he discovered two things. One is that the vast majority of stories can be reduced down to six formulas. You know, Netflix has thousands and thousands of movies. Vonnegut says, don't waste your time. There's six of them <laughs> because they just keep repeating with different characters. Uh, and the other thing he found is that many of the most popular stories are basically the same formula repeated over and over. And so a great example of this that Vonnegut pointed out to was Cinderella versus Annie. And so in both of those cases, what you find is that the, the protagonist starts in a very poor place. Things are going badly for Annie. She's an orphan uh, and she has no home. She lives in an orphanage. She has to steal to get by. Cinderella, on the other hand, is being, you know, have, has a horrible life with her evil stepsisters. Then they both get rescued, right? So Daddy Warbucks comes from Annie. Cinderella gets to go to the ball, has a great night. 
And then what happens next is that they all, they both fall back to dire straits. Annie turns out she's, she's been kidnapped by these imposters. Uh, Cinderella is back with her stepsisters work, uh, cleaning the house and uh, can't find Prince Charming. And then at the end, they're rescued once again, they live happily ever after. It's basically the same story with different specifics. And that's what, that's the power of reverse engineering and stepping back and seeing some of the, pa the patterns of what makes stories so successful. And Vonnegut figured that out and he did it over 50 years ago. And what's really fascinating is that just recently, computer scientists created a database of thousands of novels and thousands of movie scripts, and they crunched the data. And what they found was that Vonnegut was right. There are six <laughs> basic stories. Wow. Wow. So then how, how do these fields ever really evolve? Because it seems like what they're doing is following the same formula. You know, that's a great question, but I, I don't think that they're all following the same formula because what happens is, if, and this is one of the dangers of just replicating someone else's formula. If I wanted to, for example, take Cinderella right now and just change the specifics, uh, you know, maybe uh, put her in modern day Los Angeles and, um, you know, just tweak a, a variety of different factors, it would feel formulaic. And it's because by now, everyone has heard the story of Cinderella. So what you need to do is you need to inject just uh, the right amount of creativity to move it forward by combining, for example, maybe you want to make an, a, a musical by bringing in rap music, or maybe you want to uh, include some dancing. There's a, there needs to be some other element that feels fresh in order for people to accept it. And this comes at, we, this is reinforced by research out of Harvard University, where a team of researchers looked at you know what is the ideal level of creativity, and to find out what they did was they looked at research grants and they analyze the ones that get funding versus the ones that get rejected. And they look to see, are there patterns that tell us what sort of research gets funding? And what they found was it's not the research that is completely original. Those research proposals tend to get rejected. It's the research proposal with just a minor degree of novelty. And so that's the pattern is that what gets noticed is the generally familiar with a minor variation. And that's why in Decoding Greatness, what I try to do is show readers how they can find winning formulas buried within the works they admire so they can evolve them in new directions by adding their unique spin. What lessons have you learned about greatness during the pandemic? Because it seems it's provided an opportunity for some people and for some companies to really shine while it's left others struggling. Well, I feel like I need to draw from some of my previous book, The Best Place to Work Here, in order to answer that question. And in The Best Place to Work, what I did was I took over a thousand academic studies on what it means to create a great workplace. And I distilled them down into one book where you have all the actionable takeaways, regardless of whether you're a CEO or you're an executive or you're just someone starting out in the business world, what does the research say about how you can achieve top performance? And one of the one of the fascinating takeaways, I think, from for all of us from the pandemic is really seeing in a concrete way, how, A, how much lost time we have on commuting. I think a lot of people have this part of their life that they've just kind of accepted by default, like this is how it's always been done, therefore I need to keep doing it as well. Mm -hmm. And they realize how much that time, how much value can be derived from that time. Uh, and the other thing is the interplay between working hard and productivity. Those two, it's not a linear, uh, it's not a linear uh, uh, correlation. What we find is that in fact, having time to recharge 
enables us to produce at our highest levels. And so what I find fascinating is now a high percentage of people are now napping during the day. And they're just being awakened to the huge impact that that can have on their performance at work. Uh, obviously, at the office, it's really hard to nap sometimes, but when, at home, <laughs> you now have that freedom. Uh-huh. And just a 20-minute nap, it really it almost feels like you have two mornings in one day. Mm-hmm. And it's because having a nap just enables you to clear your mind from things you've been thinking about prior. It, re- it re-energizes you. And it often has a better impact on your performance than even another cup of coffee. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the amount of time it takes you to walk to a Starbucks, you can just lie down and let nature recharge you instead. Mm -hmm. I just love the fact that so many people are now appreciating the power of napping. One thing you talk about is collaboration. And obviously now collaboration looks very different since it has to take place over Zoom. Mm -hmm. How are you finding that teams are being successful even though they're not able to see each other in person and have that face-to-face interaction? You know, one of the one of the myths I think about creativity is that creativity comes from live interactions. I think that that has been overblown. And I think that we often find our most creative ideas when we're work, we do our pre-work, work on uh, creative ideas individually and then share them with the group. And ironically, that's one of the benefits now of everyone working from home is that the right kinds of meetings ha- are, are, are happening more and more frequently where people are doing their pre-work, coming into a meeting with three potential directions for execution and then sharing them as a group. Whereas it, when we were all working together in the office, the default often is that, hey, let's just call a meeting because then we feel like we can put off making a decision until we have the meeting. And wh- whereas now people are doing more of their pre-work, coming into meetings with ideas and then discussing them as a group. And so I actually believe that m- we can get a lot more bang for our creativity dollar by working individually and then sharing it with the group rather than relying on group meetings to come up with our most creative ideas. Why do some of those creative ideas come to us while we're taking a shower or just before we fall asleep at night or riding a bike instead of when we're sitting at our desk waiting for a breakthrough idea to come? Yeah, that's a great question. The shower is a fascinating one. It's kind of unique. And and I'll talk about that just, just briefly. And it is because, for one thing, most of us don't take our phones into the shower. And it's remarkable how the percentage of the day that we devote to looking at screens and creativity requires you to be a little bit bored in order for you to, to, to find some of those unrelated ideas. So you know, if you think about it, creativity is not about efficiency. It's the opposite of efficiency. It's about letting your mind drift and then seeing connections where you other that you otherwise would have missed because they don't necessarily go, travel in a linear fashion. You need to take ideas from different domains and combine them in a new way in order to be creative. The shower gives, us, gives you this, this opportunity where your, your mind wanders, you, uh, your attention is directed inward because the warmth of the shower and the, the white noise that the, the shower produces also blocks out external distractions. So for all of those reasons, the shower is kind of the ideal place. We think of the shower as a place we need to go to to get clean. It's actually where we need to go to get our best ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to falling asleep, same deal. You know, It really is the case where we're not looking at something else. We're actually just letting our mind drift. And I don't want to suggest that, you know, we've gotten to the point where we should all 
spend an hour just letting our minds drift. I, I'm just, I'm too obsessed with productivity to let that, to, to make that recommendation. <laughs> but what I would say is that we need to appreciate where creativity comes from. And it doesn't come from trying harder. It comes from allowing your mind to drift with in a strategic way. And so one of the things that I often recommend people do is find those moments where you your mind actually does drift and use them in a little bit more of a strategic way. So for example, if you're going for a swim, one of the things I like to do is I like to make a list of the things that I need to think about when I have more time. And then I look at that list right before I go swimming. And yeah. during the swim, I come up with some of my best ideas. And it's because I've primed myself to go back to that issue that I don't have a solution for. And now in combination with the physical movement of swimming, that's when the best ideas uh, I find arise. And you could do the same thing with walking, you know, or mm -hmm. cooking. But why is it that we'll have these breakthrough ideas? We think to ourselves, oh my God, this is a great idea. I'm always going to remember this. And then we don't, even though it's a breakthrough, right. <laughs> especially before we go to bed. I know. And you can't write it down. Right. Well, you can write it down. You know, this is one of the things I have a program called the peak performance formula. And in it, I provide people with all the research on how to achieve top performance. And this is one of the things that I, I, I try to impress on people is you need a paper and pad everywhere. And that includes next to your bed. And it includes one in the shower. They actually have waterproof pads that you can put in the shower. And it actually, actually comes with a very uh, a snazzy pencil that says, never let good ideas go down the drain again. <laughs> oh, I love it. I like that. Yeah. Yes. And you capture those ideas. And this is actually an idea from uh, David Allen, who, who wrote Getting Things Done. And one of, the things he, uh, one of the things he talks about is how your mind is designed to come up with ideas, but not hold on to those ideas. And so the better you get at capturing ideas, the moment they arise, the more you can create new ideas. And the, the challenge for many of us is that we don't have that process in place. So we try to force ourselves to remember things. And that's a wasted effort because what you could do is you could just get rid of those ideas, capture them in some way, whether it be on your phone or on a pad, and then move on to coming up with the next great idea. You know, you wrote an article a few years ago in Psychology Today that I found fascinating. You said that there's a satisfying rush we experience when there's too much on our plate that we feel needed, challenged, even productive, but it's an illusion that robs us of our focus and prevents us from making progress on the work that matters most. Tell us more about that. You know, it's easy to fall into this trap. One of the things that happens when we feel like we're really busy all the time is we, we conflate that with being valued because we're being responsive to other people's needs. And this is the reason why we often start our day by checking our email or listening to our voicemail. And what happens when you go home at the end of a day like that is you feel oddly dissatisfied and you have no memory of what you did that day, right? So your kids ask you at the end of the day, how was your day at work? You're like, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, we just, we just, because we're always responsive to other people's needs. And, and, and ironically, what actually ends up being giving us the most satisfying days is when we start our day with a strategic session of plotting out what perfect day would look like, and then reverse engineer that by working backwards and actually knocking off those big rocks that we've identified would make our day more valuable. And so it, it is a constant battle that we need to have unless we learn to appreciate that the most satisfying days come when we're actually authoring our uh, attention. 
we're not responsive to others, but rather we identify what the most important things we need to achieve are, and then we work to knock those things out. And unless you recognize that, yes, responding to people in the moment might feel temporarily satisfying, it doesn't provide you with that long-term satisfaction. You're going to have a lot of bad days. Mm -hmm. We're hearing from so many people that they feel a lack of motivation during the pandemic, working at home. What advice do you have for them? One of the things I would say about feeling unmotivated at home is to think about what, to think about a time when you were motivated at the office and ask yourself, what is it that was different then? For a lot of people, what's lacking right now is the social connection. And one of the one of the one of the innovative things that you can try to do is to work a little bit more of that even from home by scheduling scheduling lunch dates with colleagues or people you'd like to get to know and just you know having sandwiches over zoom together that interpersonal connection is actually a driver of top performers we often think that Talking to other people feels like a little bit like wasted time because we're not producing something that we can then show our manager. But in fact, investing in social connections makes us better employees. It gives us a lot more energy than we recognize. And obviously, that's one of the things that's lacking right now. The other thing is that the boundaries between work and home have evaporated. And for a lot of people, they're missing that downtime of the commute that they then get to let their mind drift and they don't have that transition period. And so being intentional about recreating that transition period by either having a half hour where you go for a very long walk or having some type of ritual that you go through, it could be a shower when you get home just to say, okay, the workday has ended. That's another factor that I think can, can play into it. And then the third thing is just being very cognizant about how we use our devices. When you are used to being responsive for work all day long, the default is to be reactive and to respond to other people's messages. And what one thing that happens when the day is over is we're in that mindset of being reactive. And then we can't come home to try to be with our families. And we are still in that reactive mind where we're looking for stimulation. And so one of the ways we uh, that shows up is that we stare at our phones, even when we don't need to anymore. And one of the solutions to that is there's, they sell these online. You could find them. They're kind of like plastic prisons <laughs> for your phone with a timer that you can actually put your phone in and you set the time and it will not allow you in until that time uh, elapses. And then I, one of the other recommendations I often make to people is to have a second device for home that is separate from work, that doesn't have your email on it, that doesn't have all those text messages coming in. They still allows you to enjoy the things that you want to enjoy on your downtime, for example, Spotify, but doesn't have the, the call to, to work that your, your primary device does. Is it your sense that the pandemic has really fueled greatness, that it's thrown everything into such chaos in some ways that it's created a real atmosphere of greatness? Mm -hmm. And it's also made it so that people have the time to study right. people and use reverse engineering. Which yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Has, greatness. Yeah, yeah. has it really fueled it? I think both of those perspectives are, there's some truth to both of them. And what I would say is that one of the things that I'm more optimistic about is that this time 
of slowing down a little bit, spending a little bit more time at home has led to introspection around what you, where people want to go in their careers and what they really want to achieve. And what I'm hopeful for is that this book, Decoding Greatness, offers people some of the tools that they can use to actually get there. So many of us have these stories where when we were younger, we had these big dreams. And then when we got to our 20s and 30s, all of a sudden, having a job that pays the bill became a lot more appealing. We kind of let go of those ideas that we had as children because we assumed that either we didn't have the talent, that we weren't born with the talent, or we just didn't have the runway that we needed to put in the 10,000 hours to practice. But the truth is you don't need either of those to achieve greatness. What you do need is a system for getting there. And that's why within the book, what I try to do is show people how they can study the best in their fields and then apply their strategies to their work to succeed faster and take their works in just striking new directions. As you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me. So at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about how reverse engineering would really change the game that you wish that they had when you were first in your field? It's a great question. And what I would say is it's reverse engineering. (laughs) So when I first entered graduate school for social psychology, I had to write academic journal articles. And it was not a pretty sight to see me writing academic journal articles and figuring out how to do it because there was really no, no kind of formula for doing it. And so I struggled for a really long time. It was a central... Uh, uh, requirement for succeeding in my field is writing these academic journal articles. I didn't know how to do it until one day I decided to look at the person who I thought was the best writer in the field and just read his articles one after the other. And, And what I found in doing that was that there was a hidden pattern in his approach. And it was in the way that he presented his thesis at the beginning. He started with an interesting fact, then he went to his thesis, then he went to uh, some additional stories. In any event, there was a formula in there and I was able to extract it by studying his work and applying it to my uh, academic articles. And it, it was kind of the most valuable thing I learned in graduate school. Later, when I, after I got my degree, I started applying that same approach to creating presentation decks and to writing books by looking at the best in the field, figuring out what their patterns were, and then applying it to the work I wanted to create. And so I wish this book, honestly, I wish this book. <laughs> and you know, the other thing is when I tell creative people, people who work in creative industries, the book that I'm working on, almost everyone says, you know, I've been doing that all my life and I've never read about it. And so I just, I, I'm, I'm excited because I'm hopeful that other people will see the value in using reverse engineering to figure out how to create outstanding work and then succeed faster without banging their head on the wall like I did back in graduate school. And how can people connect with you on social media and the internet? The best way to find me is to go to decodinggreatnessbook.com where you can uh, learn more about the book and get some really great bonuses. Uh, There's a course on it that you get for free. Um, You can find me on at Ron Friedman on Twitter and I've got a website, ronfriedmanphd.com. Well, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. I mean, this is such revolutionary stuff that I guess we've all been doing, but now learning exactly what it is and and realizing how to harness it it is fantastic. So we thank you for writing the book and for coming on with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to go and get a bunch of notepads and put them all around the house now. (laughs) Let's get the shower thing. Uh, Man, I want that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) No, thank you, Ron. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
Our thanks again to Ron Friedman, whose latest book is called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.